Amen. All right, before I read this text, uh, just a, a comment. You know, when we come to God, there's a couple, there's a couple of forces going on here. There's this, there's this, first of all, I think if we really kind of look at it, there's this force that repels us because even if we know just a little bit about God, even if we don't know very much about God, we know that, if, that what God wants is all of us. When we come to him, he wants all of us. He doesn't want us just to come in part. We kind of have the sense that he asks for everything of who we are. And that's scary, right, if we're, if we're honest. It's a little scary. Uh, and so uh, God wants to be the central concern in our lives, and, and, and that's a little bit scary to us. And yet at the same time, there's this other force that, that propels us. So we're repelled a little bit by that fear, but we're propelled by the, the idea that we want more God. I mean, that's why we're here gathered together. That's why we, we open our Bibles. That's why we pray. That's why we do a lot of things we do, because deep down there's this sense that we want more of God in our lives. We, we want him to be more a part of what we're doing, the fabric of everything that we are. And so... Uh, there's these two forces at work, and, and one pushes us towards God, and one can kind of repel us away from God. And, 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 and it becomes a bit of a dilemma for us. We want more, and we don't want more of God. And so we're caught in this sort of middle place. And that is, in fact, the story of the man that we're going to read about this morning, the rich young ruler, starting in Luke 18, verse 18. Let me read this for us. And a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, right out of the gate, the opening salvo Jesus for Jesus and this young ruler is for Jesus to recalibrate the goodness scale. So there are a couple of goodness scales out there that we can look at. The one, the most common one I find is, am I good in relation to other people? Am I good in relation to other people? And, and, and when you talk to people in our environment, in our community, that's the one that often comes up. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so, or I'm, 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 I'm 51% good and, and 49% bad, so I'm okay, right? So it's kind of a, a comparison scale. The other scale is goodness in relation to God, who is perfect. And that scale is much more exacting. And what Jesus does in the opening part of this conversation with the rich young ruler is, ruler is to recalibrate the goodness scale. The, the rich young ruler says, in a sense, that, that, uh, that, that, that he has this scale of goodness that's a little bit more social, and, and he'll explain that in a minute. And Jesus recalibrates to say, no, the scale of goodness is the perfection of God. The perfection of God. Verse 20. You know the commandments, Jesus replies, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, that's the rich young ruler, said, all these I have kept from my youth. And I want to say, really? Right? Which scale are you using? I mean, this gives us a window into which scale he's using, right? Because if you really kind of look underneath and you ask the tough question, have I really kept these commandments? Nobody who's sober could look at that and say, yes, I've kept all these commandments every moment of every day. See, it's a different scale. It's a comparison to others or comparison to God. And so uh, he answers this way, and Jesus being the incredibly perceptive um, prophet Jesus that he is, um, looks into this man's life, and he responds. Verse 22, he says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. I, I love this. He, he didn't say, oh, psh, 
yeah, whatever. No, you haven't done that. You know, he didn't do, belittle him. He just, he's, he has this penetrating insight. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And right there, we understand Jesus already knows what the problem is for this rich young ruler because he speaks about treasure. He says, uh, you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This is the one of the most beautiful things. If you want to just sit back in the afternoon and read through the Gospels and just look at Jesus and his perceptiveness and how he gets in and he, he gets inside of a person and what's actually making them tick. And with a simple question or prod, he can sort of draw out where there needs to be growth and change and transformation. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, that's the rich young ruler... He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now Jesus, looking at him with sadness, Jesus is sad about his sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then this famous saying, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we could do some good exegesis here and talk about the um, traditional uh, needle-making techniques of the Israelites and the way camels were. Or we could just state the obvious, that camels are really big and needles are really small. And so this is saying that it's impossible. It is impossible. The camel is the biggest animal that they had around. Verse 26, those who heard it said then who can be saved? But he, Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Take us back to last week. One of the things we said about being a follower of Jesus Christ is you have to come to that place where you allow somebody from the outside, somebody from the outside to help you with your spiritual business with God. We, we want desperately to control everything, everything in our lives, and, and including our spiritual lives. And, and so we want, to, we want to do it ourselves. One of the things about being a Christian is letting that go. Letting somebody from the outside speak into and do what you cannot do in your spiritual life. Verse 28, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And I don't think Peter is saying... Um, Look how cool we are. We've done it. I think he's just being sort of the impetuous Peter who's just stating the obvious and sort of in a childlike way. He's like, are we, so are we okay, you know, Jesus? Um, and, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, the disciples and Peter, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Interesting observation. Um, Peter says, we left homes to follow you. And Jesus sort of corrects it. He says, no, you didn't really leave homes. You left relationships to follow me. Because that's what's more important. Um, not so much the homes, but the relationships. Because those are the most valuable things. And, and this statement is so true. And, and, and this, that, that you will be given so much. When I was traveling over this summer and going to different places, it, you know, this happens when... When you're a Christian, you go to a new place and you meet a bunch of Christians there. You're just overwhelmed by 
how within a matter of moments you can feel like brothers and sisters with these people who are a world apart and a culture apart and you never knew them before and, and there you are all of a sudden eating dinner and talking about life and deep things and wonderful things and it's an incredibly beautiful process and something that happens and it's true that God has given us all of these things in Christ right now and then we have the time to come to think. Now, what I want to talk about this morning from this text is this idea of moving Christ to the center. See, that seems to be the problem with the, the rich young ruler. He's not all in with Jesus yet. That's why the, the title, being all in, and it's, it's about moving Christ to the center. And this is a form of maturity in Christ. Now, maturity in Christ runs along numerous axes. And we can talk about it in different ways. We can talk about it uh, on the relational axis. And so how do we relate to Jesus Christ? What's the nature of our relationship to Jesus Christ? Or we can talk about maturity um, with respect to competencies. What, what do we understand of what God has called us to? Do we understand the, the Bible? Do we understand what it means to be uh, part of the community of faith? And so there's competencies that go along with that. But then there's also this relational maturity with, with Jesus Christ. And it's along that line that Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler. It seems out of the gate that the rich young ruler is somewhat uh, uh, mature in some ways. Uh, He's respected in the community. He's connected, it seems. Um, He's probably a civic leader. If he were uh, a Pharisee leader, then he probably would not have been portrayed in the same way because most of the time when Luke portrays the Pharisees, there's this antagonism between Jesus and the Pharisees. So um, we don't have that here. So probably he's a a well-respected civic leader who would have been a pious man and that people would have looked up to. He's very dutiful. He, he has sought to carry out all the commandments and to fulfill them in every way possible. And so you would look at him from the outside and you'd go, oh, what a mature guy he is. He's mature spiritually. But Jesus penetrates deeper and causes us to sort of ask that question on a more profound level, what in fact is maturity in Christ? And the answer that he draws us to is this, that maturity in Christ is about making Christ central to all that you are and all that you do. Now, like I said, there are a number of different ways to define maturity, and it runs along many different axes, and it's a complicated thing to define what it means to be mature in Christ. Um, but we've been working with some different definition, definitions around the office, and we're trying to work on sharpening our vision a little bit, and... Um, we're, we're putting together probably different pieces of this, but one of the axes, the kind of relational axis with Jesus, um, um, runs like this. And he'll, so here's a kind of a definition of maturity, and then I'm going to see how the rich young ruler fits into this, this definition. And I want to talk about four different levels of maturity. First of all, and these will be very simple, first of all, um, and these come really out of, um, you know, sort of as the seeker movement. Uh, those of you who are familiar with, you know, church style and, and modern church history, as the seeker movement is sort of struggling, um, people are asking a question, what, why aren't people maturing in, in this movement in the way that we would want them to? And so this is part of the rubric of the answer. So the first stage for, uh, for somebody who's aspiring to follow Christ is to explore Christ, um, be considering Christ, we could say. Uh, the mood of this person is sort of sober inquiry. I, I have questions about who this Jesus is, and I would like those to get answered. And so I'm going to search and try to find answers, and, and there's a dialogue. And what this person needs is a sensitive apologist, right? Somebody who 
can give uh, a reason for the faith that's in them. Somebody who can talk about what, what are the, the core beliefs of, of the Christian faith and to do it sensitively um, as to where the person is. Um, the second sort of uh, level of this is, is growing in Christ. You know when somebody actually crosses the line, when they, we talk about this most Sundays, um, we try to, there's, there's this moment when you sort of cross over from being somebody who's exploring Jesus Christ to being somebody who's actually committed to Jesus Christ in faith. When you understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and you, would, you understand that he's Lord of the world and you would like to acknowledge both of those as being true for you in particular, and you do that by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And now you are a Christian. You've, you've crossed over. And in those early stages, when you, when you become a Christian, you begin to grow in Christ. And those of you who have been in that stage or you know people in that stage, there's something wonderfully special about that. There's this joy and this eagerness to learn and everything seems fresh and new and you're growing and it's wonderful and you're absorbing it all and you're taking it all in and it's overwhelming and the beauty and the goodness and the greatness of God oftentimes is before you and it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and a person who's in that stage is, it has that mood of joy and, and, and discovery and the newness of it and what they need is, is oftentimes a competent teacher, right? Who's, somebody who's going to explain What's going, what, what Christianity is um, with a mentoring kind of, rather than an apologist, apologist kind of mood. The third one is somebody who's kind of close to Christ. And here we find where people often, as they're seeking Christ, will come to a kind of a plateau. Um, they've been growing and maturing, and then it just seems like all of a sudden there's things kind of stop, and, and, and this is something that we observe oftentimes uh, in, in ourselves and, and those around us. And, and that is really that the person is close to Christ, but Christ hasn't taken that central spot in the person's life yet. Uh, and so the self is still at work in there, and the self is in conflict with Christ, and sometimes Christ wins out inside of us, and we make the decision for Christ, but sometimes self and the longings and the loves of, of self win out, and so there's this kind of conflict between um, Christ and self going on inside of us, and the mood of that stage is sometimes stagnation, you feel stagnant, like, a, like something, you know, I, I was so, it was so great when I came to Christ, and I was growing, and I loved it, and now I just seem to be stuck, and I would like to move forward, but I haven't been able to move forward, there's a kind of a stagnation and a frustration that comes with it, and what that person so often needs is is a wise mentor who can penetrate to the depth of the soul and say, here's what's going on inside of you, and here's where the idols are, and where self is rearing its head. And one of the verses that I've been coming back to recently over and over again is Proverbs 25, which says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And there are those times, those seasons in our walk with the Lord when we need a man of understanding or a woman of understanding who can come along and help us to understand what the purposes are in our hearts and where the idols are keeping us from that real true focus on Jesus Christ, from making him central to all that we are. And I pray that in this community, that as we minister together, we can be to one another, that man or woman of understanding who can help draw out what needs to be drawn out, what's going on underneath the surface so that we can cast aside those idols and those, those loves that are not Christ and put Christ right in the center. And then the fourth one is this place of being actually Christ-centered where um, there's, there's death to self in a, in, in a powerful way and there's being alive to Christ where, where really 
no longer the, the deep concern of your heart is how am I going to be protective of myself and what's mine, but that's dissipating and, and falling away. And your greatest longing and your greatest concern is how will this reflect on Christ? How will this glorify Christ? What does it mean for Christ? So we think of Paul in prison, right? And he doesn't even care what happens to him. He doesn't care if he dies or he lives. He doesn't care what happens. It's just all Christ. Whether I live or I die, whatever's going to bring glory and honor to Christ. And we think of that as being a mature Christian, right? Somebody who's, who's gone through that process of death to self in a deep way. And so there's this joyful, the mood is a kind of a joyful and a peaceful cooperation with God. And that person needs a mission, something to do with their lives, and that person needs fellow co-workers to come along and be a part of that mission together. Uh, and so that's, that's where we find it. Now, it, the, the reality is we probably bounce back and forth between being close to Christ and being Christ-centered. We're never fully going to be Christ-centered until heaven. So let's just acknowledge that and don't walk out of here saying, oh man, I'm such a failure because I'm not. No, it's going to be a bouncing back and there's going to be deeper uh, seasons where, where there's a, a deeper uh, uh, handing over of our lives to Jesus Christ and making him central. And so we sort of bounce back and forth between those. Now the rich young ruler, where does he fit into this? Well, he's close to Christ. His, him, he and Christ are in conflict with, it, with each other inside of him because he loves treasure, he loves wealth, right? And Jesus, being the man of understanding who can draw out the deep waters, points that out to him in a very subtle kind of way. He says, okay, um, I know what's really going on underneath the, underneath the, 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 the surface there is that you love treasure. And, and so for you, the next step is to let go of your treasure, sell it all, and come and follow me. Jesus is, is the man of understanding. And he points out the need to this rich young ruler. Because enthroned in the heart of this rich young ruler are two, Christ and money. And they're, they're together, both trying to sit on the same seat in the center of who he is. And it doesn't work. And here's the implications of it if you look through the text. First of all, the rich young ruler is sad, right? Because the thought of letting go of this idol of wealth that he loves produces sadness. Sadness, emotions are a great window into the heart. And when things happen and they drop the deep emotions in us, it's a way for us to understand oftentimes where our true loves are. Now there is sadness when we lose things in this life, but there's a different, there's a gripping, overwhelming kind of sadness. And then there's the kind of sadness that comes with, yes, that's a loss, but I still have Christ. And, and this, this uh, wealthy young ruler seems to be gripped with that kind of uh, deep sadness, which is overwhelming, uh, because he loves his idol, and we love our idols, and it's hard to let him go. But now Jesus is sad too, the implication of being close to Christ and not being Christ-centered. Jesus is sad because he sees the rich young ruler and the love that the rich young ruler has for his wealth. And it makes Jesus sad. And it's interesting, we've been in these moments, right? I mean, Jesus could change his diagnosis, couldn't he? He could say, oh, well, it's okay, I don't want you to be sad. Go ahead and love money and love me, and we'll just kind of see how it works out. But in his love, he doesn't do that. He remains firm with the rich young ruler. He doesn't change his position because he knows 
deep down, the greatest thing for this rich young ruler is to put Christ in the center and let go of the idol of wealth. That without doing that, he's always going to be living something um, pale in comparison to what it could be. And so he holds the line because his intentions for the rich young ruler aren't just something better. His intentions for the rich young ruler are perfection, right? Perfection, something great and wonderful and magnificent. And those are Jesus' intentions for us. And when you, when you sit back in the afternoon, you read through the Gospels, and you think, who is this Jesus? And you see the beauty of this man who loves so deeply, and yet is this, filled with the strength of character. That when, when people resist him, he holds firm out of a tremendous love for their well-being. And we need to know that's the Jesus that we come to when we come to Jesus. He's not a mushy, wishy-washy kind of Jesus. He's one who loves us, loves us even in firmness and to the point of bringing us to perfection. Now, the rich young ruler, lastly, is reoriented by this interchange with Jesus. He's, he starts off eager to approach him, right? He comes up to Jesus. You can imagine the picture. All these people are coming around Jesus, and the rich young ruler comes up, and he wants to approach him, and he's got questions, and he's, he's a pious man. He wants to grow. He wants to, 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 to become more mature, and so he's, he's genuine in his approach, and he's eager in his approach, and how does he walk away? Dejected, having sort of given up on the search. And the problem is not Jesus, right? The problem is in him because he has this other love and he's unwilling to submit himself to Jesus Christ. And some of us are in that kind of a relationship with Jesus right now. There's this, we're sadly dejected because we've come to Jesus and and maybe Jesus has been firm with us about something in our lives that we need to cast aside and get rid of. And we've, we've been sad because we love it very, very much. And so we turn away. We came with eagerness, wanting to grow, wanting more of God. And then we didn't like what we heard. And so now we're sad. And, and our posture, like the rich young ruler, is to turn away from Jesus and to walk the other way. And so we remain close to Christ there's something that we're missing because we're holding on to the idol that we love so much. There's a deep blessing that we're missing. The reason we're reading this this morning, the reason God has this this morning for us, is because Jesus this morning wants to move to the center of your life. Okay, I really believe that. It's not just random, pick a text day. Okay? We're reading this today. God has this for us. It's in the Bible, and, and He's brought it to our attention today because today Jesus wants to move towards the center of your life. John Stott, in the book that we give out, uh, Basic Christianity describes this process as he comes to Jesus Christ. It's a, a beautiful thing. The very end of this book, and if you're a new Christian or you're seeking Jesus, encourage you to pick up a copy of Basic Christianity. I believe we have some on the back. If we don't, we can get some um, for you. It's a great introductory text. Um, and at the end of it, he describes his story of coming. Yeah, there's five of them back there. So um, he describes his story of coming to Christ. And um, he writes this. Yesterday really was an eventful day. Up till now, Christ has been on the circumference. That means sort of the outside, right? 
and I have but asked him to guide me instead of giving him complete control. Isn't that, isn't that the way it is? Jesus, guide me, show me what to do, but I'll maintain the controls, right? Jesus has been on the circumference, and I have asked him to guide me instead of giving him complete control. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks today. He stands at the door and knocks. I have heard him, and now he has come into my house. He has cleansed it, and now rules in it. That's what it means to come to Jesus as Savior, the one who cleanses you from your sin by his death on the cross, and Lord. What does Lord mean other than Jesus Christ is central in your life? He's the most important concern. You die to self, you live to Jesus Christ. That's what that means, to have him as Lord. I was on my flight to, I think it was the first flight over the summer when I was going to, uh, to uh, New Jersey, and I sat down on my seat, and there was a couple next to me, and there were only three in the row, and there was the, the, the mother and the father, and then they had like a two-year-old boy sitting right there. And so there was three of us. And so, you know, we got talking a little bit, and she sort of says, you know, if there's any chance that you'd be willing to move to a different seat, um, that would help us. Um, because we have this two-year, we're going to be managing it, and here we all cramped in three people in two seats. And I thought, sure, absolutely. You know, we used to live in the East Coast when we had three kids, and we'd fly back and forth, and boy, we'd be walking onto the plane, and people would see us, and they'd be like, oh no, don't sit next to me, right, with three little kids, and I know what it's like, we've had kids puke on, um, on people uh, on, the, on the flight, we've had noise, you know, I know all those drills, and so I was very, very happy to do that, so I wanted to go, I tried to go move, but the flight attendant said, you cannot now, because the seatbelt sign's on, we're about ready to take off and everything, and so... Um, uh, I'm waiting and waiting, and, you know, we're talking, having a good time, but you can tell that this is increasingly difficult. And, and there's that smell, the poopy diaper, and so having an extra seat would be nice um, to be able to deal with that. And so I'm waiting and waiting, and finally the flight attendant seems to have forgotten, so I ask another flight attendant, any chance I can move and seatbelt sign? And then finally the seatbelt sign goes off, and I pop up, and the flight attendant finds me another place to sit, and so I sit down there, and now these people have all this place. And this is a strange illustration, but it comes to my mind because I think that some of us are sitting there and we're waiting for the seatbelt sign to go off so that we can get the idols out of the chair in the center of who we are. And I want to tell you today that the seatbelt sign is off. Today is the day, okay, to get the idol out, right? Whatever it is, to get it out. There's no reason to wait any longer. The seatbelt sign is off. Now, what are the idols? I made a list of, of some of the idols that we... We hang on to. And uh, in this respect, Jim Cherm is with us today. Uh, Jim Cherm was, uh, was on staff uh, with the church for a while, and recently he moved back to New York City. And, um, and so I want to talk about the idol of college football. Um, because when you fly across the country to watch your team play the Bears... Jim graduated from Northwestern. I think there might be some idolatry issues there. And, and Jim, I just want to say that no matter how gracious you try to be on Facebook, um, it won't do any good. <laughs> we saw what you, you said. Um, so there's that idol. Um, and, and, and that's the big one, um, especially during this season. But I, 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 I wrote down some lesser idols um, that we face. Uh, the first one has to be wealth, right? Because the rich young ruler, that was his. Wealth is the idol. Um, and a lot of us think, well... But, you know, I mean, look around us. People make so much more than me. 
I'm not really wealthy. Um, and I just want to remind us of something that I learned when I was in Africa, that the average yearly salary there, at least in some countries, is $900 a year. Um, and so we may not be even in the uh, upper portion of American wealth, but the fact that we have what we have makes us wealthy people. And I don't think we even begin to understand how much we do have and, and how much it plays into our lives. Even if we, even we look around us and we're on the lower end of the scale, just being here and having the things that we have makes us candidates for this particular idol. Second one is relationships. Sometimes relationships become idols, um, the ones we have or the ones we don't have. The relationship we have can become an idol, or the relationship we don't have can become an idol. And I don't know, maybe the relationship that we don't want to have could become an idol. No, that doesn't work. Um, another idol is the, the, the intellect. The, and, and this is something that's very, I think, part of our Bay Area experience. Um, brains are what have gotten you here, wherever you are. I find this over and over again. And because of that, there's a tremendous trust and faith in the intellect. Because that's what got me here to whatever it is that I'm doing. And so I'm going to continue to rely on that. And the problem with, with intelligence is that it only takes just a small little uh, degree for it to be off and then to be running full force in the wrong direction and applying all of its strength and ability and skill. But if it's off and it's vector by one degree, then it's in the wrong direction. And so intelligence is a good gift from God, but it stands... Uh, the potential of being off and leading us a long ways in the wrong direction. And so um, it can become an idol. The idol of control is another one that comes to mind. Um, we have this idol because we can be in control of our lives in unprecedented ways. Living in this time, in this place, we can be con- in control of our lives in completely unprecedented... You do realize, you know, way back in the Middle Ages, there would only be one person in society who would even think of having as much control over their lives as we have, and that would be the king, right? But we, with the tools that we have, can control things. And so that fosters a, a love of control and a desire to control things more and more and more. And so that becomes an idol for us. And associated with that idol is the idol of comfort, because we can have it. We can have so much comfort, and we can have just a little bit more comfort the next day and the next day, and people are offering us things that would make us more comfortable, and without us even thinking about it, comfort becomes an idol, and it crowds out Jesus Christ, who, by the way, oftentimes wants us to be uncomfortable for his sake. Technology. Technology brings possibilities. There you are, you're tired, you're exhausted, and there's your phone, and you think, oh, somebody might have said something on Facebook that will make me feel loved. I'm going to get on there and, and look and see what it is. And, and so there's developed this longing. And before you know it, you don't even think anymore. You pick up your phone whenever there's a moment, and you just press the buttons and go there. And you're just hungering for some sort of affirmation and longing. And technology has this power, right? Or you want to see what's new or the new idea, the new concept. I just ordered this book this morning called, um, what is it called, The Shallows or something? And it's a it's, it's newish book. And it talks about how the Internet is changing the way we process and we think and how technology, especially the Internet, is changing that. And this becomes an idol, right? Rather than sitting down with a long book that might have one sustained argument, I'm going to go look at the various news articles and sort of bounce around from one to the other. And so then we just sort of stay on the surface, and this becomes uh, a kind of an idol for us. Those of us who have lived in this area for a while, you know the, the idol of politics and the potential of politics to become an idol. If, and it makes perfect sense, right? If you don't trust in God because you don't believe in God, 
to fix the world, then who are you going to trust? Well, the next one down for some people is the, the leadership of the country, the politicians. And so there becomes this obsession with getting the right people in there so that we can fix all the problems that we have in our world. And it becomes a kind of an idol for us. And I don't have to talk to you about how that unfolds itself in your political conversations. Um, and then lastly, the, the, the candidates that we always put up there, in addition to wealth, sex, and power. Wealth, relationships, intellect, control, comfort, technology, politics, sex, and power, and college football. All these are idols that we have to face, uh, and all these uh, can take up that center place in our lives, and Christ is saying, that's my seat. That's where I want to sit because it will be good for you and it will bring honor to me. And so will you clear off the seat and let me take a seat in the center part of your life? Will you put yourself to the side and let me be in the center? Now, this text shows us a couple things that help us to move Christ into the center. The first one is very simple. Christ moved to the center when we come to Jesus. Okay, that's obvious. This would be obvious. But I'll remind us of the eagerness of the rich young ruler when he started. He wanted, he's eager. He comes to Jesus and he asks hard questions because he wants to know. And wherever you are in the stage, if you're just exploring Christ, keep asking questions. Keep seeking. There is no question that you should be afraid of and no question you should be afraid asking in this community because we want to be the kind of community that helps each other Let's not pretend. There's no point in pretending about this Christian thing. Let's ask the hard questions and seek the answers together. So if you're in that exploring Christ kind of stage, ask the questions. If you are in that growing Christ stage, continue to come to Jesus and ask the questions. If you are in that close to Christ stage, find that man or woman of understanding who can pull out, who draw out from you what is the obstacle, the barrier to your growth. What idols are in there? Help you to see that so that you can grow um, through that to the next portion. All of us, come to Christ, come to Christ, whatever stage we're in. The second one is identify our idols. And I've listed a bunch of them already. I'm not sure if the rich young ruler understood what his idol was. And you see the subtlety of Jesus. Hey, let me talk to you about one more thing, about treasure in heaven. Because I've perceived that you love your wealth. And so for you, the next thing is to let go of that idol. And to move. And, and, and the rich young ruler was filled with deep sadness because he loved that thing. He loved his wealth. And now Jesus was putting his finger on it. And where we find those deep sadnesses, we often find an attachment that may or may not be healthy. And so it's a kind of window for us. That sadness is a kind of window for us to look at what our idols are and what we might be attached to when we should be attaching ourselves more fully to Christ. Look to the true treasures of this world, Jesus says. At the very end there, he says, In this time you will be given, why, uh, you left your house, you'll be given wife, brothers, parents, children, etc. Um, and, and what are the true treasures of this world? It's the relationships that God provides for us. Those are the true tre treasures. I shared this with you a little bit. Being in Africa was, and in Berlin was great for me this summer because I am a task guy, right? And boy, did that have to get beaten out of me you know, when I'm traveling in the mission field and in Africa, and it's about relationship. And one of the things I wrote down in my journal was, Andrew, life is a lot more about relationship than you realize. 
And, and that's what the tr- true treasure is in this life that God has given us. When, and if you're not connected in this community, I want to encourage you over this next season, we're going to be pushing our home groups and stuff. Get connected in this community because Jesus says this is where the treasure is, these kinds of relationships, and it's very, very important. And then lastly, look to heaven. Maturity involves sacrifice. And from a worldly perspective, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because we sacrifice things in this world And from a worldly perspective, it is sacrifice. But from a heavenly perspective, we're giving up something that's less valuable for something that's more valuable. So it's not really sacrifice in that case, is it? But it feels like sacrifice oftentimes because we're so caught up in the world. And so um, the, the only way for us to get over the hump of that sacrifice is to have our minds, our eyes, our ears, our heads in heaven to some degree. So that, so that we're not afraid of giving things up now because we know there'll be a future when we'll get that back and a lot more because of God's goodness in our lives. I recently finished um, uh, uh, the biography of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during the Nazis era and uh, was eventually killed for his participation in a conspiracy to kill Hitler. And um, so, and that's a pastor, whoa. Um, <laughs> And so, but you know, when you go through the whole process of it, I'm, I'm going to talk about that. It's, it's a very interesting ethical dilemma and situation. But the thing about Bonhoeffer that has really struck me is he's the rich young ruler. Bonhoeffer grew up in wonderful privilege. His, his father was a, a well-known psychiatrist professor who was actually in opposition to Freud, um, well-known sort of um, psychologist and um, psychiatrist. And he had wealth, he had connections, he had everything. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave it up to become a pastor and to become a theologian, and they sort of looked down on that. And it took him on this journey of continual death to self until finally it meant death in the real physical sense. And Bonhoeffer writes some wonderful things about the church. He had some wonderful views on the church, and he writes about death itself. Way before he died, in a sermon he preached, he says this, death is grace. Now those of you who are sitting here and you're going, yeah, I've identified the idol and when we come forward for communion this morning, I'm going to ask that you, you come forward with an idol in your mind that you want to lay down at the communion table and leave it there so that Christ can take up the central part. And I know that's scary for some of us, okay? But be thinking about that and praying about that right now. But as, you, as you're scared of it, listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Death is grace. The greatest gift of grace that God gives to people who believe in him. Death is mild. Death is sweet and gentle. It beckons to us with heavenly power. If only we realize that it is the gateway to our homeland, the tabernacle of joy, the everlasting kingdom of peace. Let those words ring out in your mind and in your heart as you consider dying to that next thing God's calling you to die to. Now, Eric Metaxas writes this of the way Bonhoeffer felt about the church at that time. He felt that what was especially missing from the life of Christians in Germany was the day-to-day reality of dying to self, of following Christ with every ounce of one's being in every moment, in every part of one's life. Isn't that a great statement? And that's what's missing in in our church too, in every church, in American church. That's what's missing is, is that that death to self and being alive to Christ. Now, the real rich young ruler of the universe is Jesus Christ. 
because he had everything with the Father in heaven and he gave it all up to enter this world and to offer himself a living sacrifice to die on the cross so that we might be saved by faith as we trust in him to be our savior. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who gave it all for us and he's beckoning us today. He's saying, will you come to me? And will you let me take up the seat in the center of your life? And, and, and it may be idealistic and somewhat radical, these words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let me read them one more time. He felt that was especially missing from the life of Christians in Germany was the day-to-day reality of dying to self, of following Christ with every ounce of one's being in every moment, in every part of one's life. And Lord, we ask that you would make true of us a greater and greater death to self that the idols we hang on to so tenaciously, we would finally and fully let go of. Help this be a day of letting go of freedom from the chains that bind us as we wrap ourselves around things that are less valuable than you. Let this be a day, Lord, when in death to self, we become more alive to you through Jesus Christ.